Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 128 of Control the Controllables. I'm bringing this episode to you from Portugal, where I am quite aptly with eight professional tennis players playing on the ITF ITF Tour it's 42 degrees where I am, so I've managed to escape to the hotel for half an hour to bring this introduction to you, to my next guest. Today we have Mike Bulaga. Mike is the CEO of Wingfield, and Wingfield is a fantastic new company, brought out a smart court. We talk a lot about data analysis on this podcast, and He is part of a team that's really brought together a way of bringing you accurate statistics on one court by changing the net post. And I think it's a a great idea. It's something that's starting to take off. And we unpack that a little bit throughout the show. But we also unpack things like going from being a tennis player, and he was a tennis player on the ITF Tour a few years ago, And now he's now used those skills to set up a business, how he's been able to bring those things through. Uh, So I'm sure you guys are going to love, love the show. I hope everyone isn't having too many blues with Wimbledon now being over and also Euro 2020 that obviously was moved to Euro 2021. I know that there's a lot of English people following this, but I have to say a big congratulations to Italy and all of our Italian followers. I was the crazy one, and that's probably not helped my voice as well, to drive back from Portugal six and a half hours to watch the final with my family and friends, to then get up at four o'clock the next morning and drive straight back obviously with a sore head, not because I touched any alcohol, because it was it was such a, a, a difficult match to watch and so much motion attached. And that's why we love sport, you know, and I guess my reflections on that, as with the reflections on Wimbledon and, and sport in general, these things bring amazing memories, good, bad, they bring emotions, they bring people together. And wasn't it so lovely to see fans in the stadium bringing that amazing live atmosphere. I have to say a big congratulations to Novak Djokovic, uh, 20 Grand Slam titles on the same number as Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. Wouldn't it be amazing if they all retired and said, you know what, we're going to go down in history together. Uh, But something tells me that won't be the end score. And then obviously to Ashley Barty as well, who 
couldn't be a nicer person from what we're picking up from everybody speaking about her. The tennis world seems so happy about Ashley and, and everything that she is, is achieving as well. So a big congrats to you guys, obviously to the doubles winners, the mix winners, the wheelchair winners, the junior winners. I'm not going to name them all, but a fantastic Wimbledon. Great to see people watching again. And we will be bringing some special guests over the next few days to, to review that show. And that will be our last show for four or five weeks. Uh, this voice needs a little bit of time to recover. And as ever, I think you guys have got enough podcasts to keep you going. So there'll be this podcast. There'll be the Wimbledon review review coming in a few days. And then there'll be a little bit of a rest for, for four or five weeks before we start back up again in September. But I'm now going to pass you over to the CEO of Wingfield, Mike Bulaga. So Mike Bulaga, welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, glad to be here today. It's it's great to have you on. And as I've just kind of said there off off air as such, you know, we've had a we've had a lot of talk on on data analytics on the podcast. You know, it's been quite a hot topic that we've talked to the players, the coaches, the agents, the other fitness coaches, you know, many people that have been on. So to have somebody that has gone away and actually been a part of setting up a whole system, you know, that you're, that you're bringing to the forefront is, is very exciting. But I also think the second exciting bit for me, Mike, is you were a tennis player yourself, you know, and I think, you know, this is a tennis podcast. Tennis is a vehicle for life is our big saying, so take us back all those years ago. How did how did tennis get into your blood? Oh yeah, the, I I think you know it's it's a pretty you know similar story to most of the players that you interviewed or you know everybody you're working with in the academy. I, I started playing tennis very early. I think four or five something like this because of my parents, but. Um, I sort of um, started to train professionally in, you know, the first junior tournaments and and step by step with, you know, regional federation, then uh, national federation and so on. I, I actually uh, went to boarding school, tennis boarding school, okay. right, right early in, um, I think back when I was 14 years old, because um, up to a certain point, it was good to practice in my own club or with the regional coaches. But then I had to move to, you know, the sort of national facility in, in Hanover to uh, get good practice partners to the right coaches and everything. Um, so, so that was an early move for me, but it was like a really amazing time and it helped me to focus on tennis quite early. Um, while at the same time continuing to go to school and uh, get my graduation going. So, so very early on, I went to boarding school after um, I sort of went to all of the different steps in junior uh, tennis from, you know, ITF tournaments, uh, Tennis Europe, uh, but also national wise. I um, played professional for, for two, two and a half years after graduating from school between 18 and, and uh, um, sort of 2021. 20, and, you know, I never made it to the top 100, uh, un, un, unfortunately, uh, but uh, at least I had a few ATP points. I, you know, I lived sort of uh, the life for, for a few years. I had a lot of injuries growing up and also in the first two years, which is why, um, you know, I stopped rather early um, with my career and continued another path then. But uh, it was it was a, um, 
a pretty straightforward career, like all of the, you know, sort of steps that you go in between. And, and it was an amazing time that, you know, sometimes now when I look back, there were definitely things that were annoying me from time to time. But now I look back and I just, you know, I can't imagine how, how blessed I was to, to, you know, have the chance to live such a life for, for, for a long period. And, and you talk about, we, we've got, we've had similar paths actually, Mike, because I went to the National Tennis Boarding School at 14 as well in the UK. <clears throat> and one of my reflections actually on that, a couple of things. One, somebody would say, did I enjoy it? And looking back, yes, I did. But there were some very difficult days, you know, and I think that's where en enjoyment, and that's a bit of a different topic, but... You know, I say to players all the time, look, we want to enjoy it, but that doesn't mean that you're happy, smiley, jumping around, you know, all, all the time. There's going to be difficult times, but did you enjoy the challenge of it? And the second one was, there was a little bit of a challenge of getting the correct academic program that goes with, with the training. How was it? I mean, in Germany, you're pretty efficient. You know, you're known to be pretty efficient. I would imagine that the academic program was was pretty efficient as well. Um, it, it was a good partnership between the school and um, also then uh, the training facility because I, I didn't went to a traditional boarding school. It was not, you know, sort of like a, um, that the boarding school was connected to the school directly. It was two, basically two very different things. The boarding school was just for, we lived there, we played tennis there, and we went to a normal school uh, during the day, basically. But they had a really good partnership going so that we could practice early in the morning, um, then go to school and have some of the classes uh, with the teachers in private after um, uh, the school finished. So, so it basically was a bit tied to our schedule our training schedule, which was very good. And, and they did a good, a good job there. And the second part is because we played a lot of tournaments and we had a lot of, you know, different uh, city to visit, especially in the, you know, ITF juniors phase. Um, we went to tournaments all over Europe and we always, you know, um, got three times for that in our schooling calendar. So whenever there was an exam to take or whatever, they were very, very flexible. We could take it another time and, you know, sometimes in another form. So, so that was really, really good. I was happy about that. But, you know, on the other hand, of course, I agree with you. Boarding school is, um, you know, very special, especially when you're, when you're in such a young age, right? You live away from, from your parents, from your, from your brother, from your sisters, whatever. And, uh, and uh, it is quite a nice time, but it comes with its challenges because sometimes you live together with your, I don't know, friends, but also competitors on the court during the day and stuff like this. So, so it wasn't, was, I agree with you. It was an interesting time. If I now look back, I enjoy it, but there was some tough times as well, obviously, but, but everybody has that, right? <laughs> uh, no, no, absolutely. And I, I think an interesting one is, uh, I always like asking the question, if you could give your 15 year old self some advice, knowing now what you know, what would you tell yourself? That's a good question. I would, I, I would tell myself um, if I just look at my tennis game, for instance, right? Um, if, if I look back, I would tell myself that um, I shouldn't put myself into one specific, you know, player type or one specific uh a player that has you know this set of abilities that is set for the rest of my career oh, yeah. at an age of 14 years old because I had 
you know, a few coaches that were very good in my career. Some of the coaches tried to get me into one corner very, very early on. And um, I sort of stuck with that for a few years. But looking back, I know now that, you know, um, especially at the age of 14, you can, you know, just basically build, build a player from scratch and teach him new things and, and really achieve anything that you want to achieve. So, so I would not start too early to, you know, basically accept, accept the fact that I'm not never going to be a hard hitter or whatever, something like this. Um, I, I think that was too early. I, I sort of changed my whole game uh, when I was 19 and uh, okay. became a completely new player. And this is something that I would change. And apart from that, I would definitely tell myself to not only focus on tennis 100%. I went to school, I finished it. But, you know, I sometimes, uh, sorry for my language, but, but half the acid in the classroom a little bit because I thought uh, my life is going to be on the tennis court and this is not going to change. So uh, probably would change that a little bit and, and listen from, from time to time. So were you, a, were you a runner? Were you a, what was your game style? Were you a... Yes, a definitely. Yeah, I can, <laughs> yeah, I can see yeah. that. <laughs> no, I, you know, I was, if you would see me uh, in person or if you're, probably look at my, I don't know, former profile at the ITF. You, you know that I probably wasn't the best server uh, at, you know, uh, less than 180, right? So, um, uh, yeah, my game was always at the baseline. And especially in juniors, I I was uh, most of the time the fittest player and I was running a lot from, from side to side. But... Yeah, I, I, you know, realized in professional tennis, uh, I got to change that. I, you know, especially if you don't have a good serve, you have to be better than the rest of the guys in, in all of the other steps, right? You got to have good touch. You got to have hard hits from the baseline and, and you can always run, right? It's, it's not going to work in professional men's tennis. So, um, yeah, I, I probably should have tried to change that early on in my career. Yeah, I think you've got to... In my opinion, you have to have two superpowers to really, to really be a top end player. You know, if I take like a demon newer, he probably has a superpower in terms of running, you know, his ability to have speed around the court. Obviously, Riley Opelka has it in, in, in the format of a serve, you know, and it's, but if you don't have a couple of really special things that stick out, it's going to be a long road. It's going to be a hard road. Definitely, I agree. And, and I think this is something that you should focus on very early in your player development, right? And I probably, uh, if I could go back now, I would try to do that uh, right in the beginning, right when I really started to, to uh, train professionally. Yeah. And, and in terms of your love of data, I guess you have a love of data in, you know, with what you've gone on to do. Uh, did that did that grow from frustration, you know, as a, as a player that you didn't get that? Is that something you started thinking about early or did that come during your coaching career? To be honest, it never was a thing that I was worrying about or thinking about during my career yeah. um, because I never knew, especially in the area where, where I was still playing and was not playing, you know, Grand Slam qualifying or anything like this I was going from future to future right um, and uh, back in the day I didn't know what data and analytics had to offer for a player in you know many different uh, possibilities and only after I stopped playing um, and became a coach but also became or, or 
you know, got, got more friends in the university from other sports, whatever. I sort of uh, understood how they manage this in other sports, such as running, swimming, cycling, whatever. And I became obsessed with how professional they can, you know, schedule their, uh, you know, training plan for a year or for two years until they get to this one point where they are in optimum in, in training and they use a lot of data to, to get to that point. Obviously in tennis, it's not going to work because you yeah. have a tournament almost every week. But especially growing up, you could use this data to structure a more long-term training approach rather than just going from tournament to tournament. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, this is something that uh, at some point then when I started coaching myself, working with juniors and seeing how other sports do it at the same time, I definitely uh, became obsessed with the idea of uh, integrating this more and more in tennis. Although it's, it, especially in the beginning, it's um, it proved to be quite difficult because tennis is a more more technical yeah. sport than just you know running, swimming, or or lifting weights, for instance. Yeah, no, I think the sport the sports are very different, and I I think anything that requires data science, you know, I know strength and conditioning coaches struggle a little bit at first in tennis because how how do you train a tennis player? You know, for for a boxer you know that they're fighting on Saturday night, eight o'clock, July the 7th, and they're going to have 12 rounds of three minutes, you know, and, and it's going to be indoors. The climate's going to be this, but the, the variables are, are so large when it comes to tennis, you know, and what, what challenges did that bring to you? Um, as, as you said already, I think the, the challenges were quite clear to me and to the whole team right in the beginning, because uh, at first we got, you know, it was our job to build something that tracks all of the data points that's that are happening on the tennis court. Uh, and then we had to use this data in order to focus on something that actually brings value or that helps you to uh, use this data in your day-to-day -day training process, right? And if you just go to, or if you compare it with uh, running, for instance, then for a runner, it's very easy to just compare your five kilometer time or the average kilometer pace um, throughout the whole year. And you definitely instantly get an idea of uh, how good you are at this very moment and what you have to achieve in order to compete on a higher level. Uh, in tennis, however, the only thing, the only solid piece of information that back in the day when we first started you had was if you won a tennis match or not and this piece of information does not reflect a lot about your you know current training status about um, whether you're improving on one side whether you have weaknesses or strengths or whatsoever so our idea was to say well what we have to develop before we can build or use data is you know um, more focused exercises, more focused drill options um, that do not, you know, um, um, have all of the different parts of the game in them, but are really focused, let's say, on a forehand cross-court drill scenario, two minutes with a partner. You just play cross-court on a specific uh, speed level. And in this speed level, do you reach to like an accuracy of 60, 80, 90, whatsoever, right? So it's very easy once you have all this data to narrow it down as soon as you just look at single pieces of the game. And then you actually have some data that you compare one from one step to the other. And then it's the same thing as 
let's say a kilometer pace or your time on 100 meter swimming yeah. for instance yeah. it's it's literally the same thing and i think for me as a coach back then um it would have been very very interesting or as a player to once you come back from a tournament and practice for a week or two for instance then it's very interesting to see where are you currently in this exercise do you have a good rhythm a bad rhythm uh are you good on your feet for instance uh, do you prepare early enough all of these things you can see in this uh, uh, one number if you compare yourself from one week to the other and i think this is the key to not really focus on the whole tennis game but to put different abilities into different sets of exercises and then have clear measurements on how to uh, define whether you're good or not at this very moment very good and, and i want to jump into i want to jump into quite a few things around the data but the for, for the listeners, I don't just want to assume that everybody knows Wingfield, you know, hopefully from, from this chat, I'm sure that people will look into it and I absolutely encourage everybody to do so. So, so tell us, tell us what, who Wingfield is, you know, what you do. And then I want to explore a little bit, the challenges of getting into that and how that started. Of course. Yeah. Um, so what we build at Wingfield um, uh, is basically a system that can uh, transform a tennis court into a digital court by just exchanging the net post. So um, if you look at all of the you know, systems that are installed on a tennis uh, center court, for instance, with Hawkeye, um, then you do have a lot of systems that provide uh, data and accuracy measurement with a lot of cameras that are being installed around the tennis court. What we did is we wanted to develop something that uh, works on any amateur court and could be implemented anywhere. It doesn't matter how, in, you know, in what shape the tennis court is, if it had big fences, small fences, no fences at all, whatever. And we decided early on in order to achieve that, we have to go for the only standardized object on a tennis court, which is the net post. So we built a smart net post that with two cameras and a processor unit can actually track the same amount of data and the same variety of data that currently the systems on a Grand Slam center court can get from uh, the impact points, um, the three-dimensional um, uh, ball trajectories, uh, speeds, but also complete scoring of a tennis match where we uh, are relying on artificial intelligence and the video images from the boxes, basically. So this is, this is what we built in order to give amateur clubs access to the same possibilities that you already have in professional tennis. Great. And, and I, I, I can't wait to try it, you know, sometime soon, Mike. But I, I want to just drag you back to, to you starting this off. So you've gone from, gone from being a player to being a coach. You've gone on a journey that I think a lot of people will understand. You know, you were a high-level player in Germany, finalist at Nationals, you know, this, this is your, this is your tennis way. How have you used your, your tennis skills or the skills that you, you collected as a tennis player in order to then set up the business? So um, I, I think the whole tennis career prepared um, me and prepared all the others that I started this company with, uh, because most, most of our employees, my co-founders, uh, most of them are tennis players okay. actually. And um, when I look back at my first career, sort of, I, I, as a tennis player, what you really built is a business. 
but the only asset that you have is yourself because compared to football or you know soccer other sports you're not a, an employee of a big club you don't get paid to just show up for practice in tennis uh, you build your own company which is basically you playing tournament by tournament uh, investing money in yourself um, you know believing in something although it's not there yet it's high risk of course and and all of these lessons that you learn um, dealing with failure, also a big one, dealing with success, but also dealing with failure. Um, I think all of these lessons prepare you brilliantly for starting uh, a business, especially a startup company, because this is all you have to do in the beginning. You have to have a big dream, but then it's a lot of setbacks. It's a lot of things that you have to get done, a lot of investment, a lot of risk. And I think um, looking back, I always say, well, of course, it's my first startup, but it's, it's my second business venture um after after the tennis career and and i think um the life lessons that you can learn while being on tour um they are really uh, you know uh, invaluable basically um it's 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 crazy um what that helps you to achieve uh, yeah. afterwards even though you don't have years of experience in business at the end of the day you you just got to rely on on what you can do and, and I want to pick up on one there that, that you said that is a massive belief of mine is, is management of failure or tolerance of failure, you know, and, and I think those people that maybe go to school, do their, go to university, get a degree, go and work in it, in, in some company probably don't have that level of experience that people in the tennis world have, you know, because it is a sport of losing tennis you know, that ability to, whether you're in Tunisia, Egypt, Turkey, you know, and even when you win tennis matches, and I use this with our players all the time, Rafael Nadal has lost 46% of points he's ever played at Roland Garros, yet he's only ever lost three matches, you know, so we're, we're constantly having to get ourselves up, go again, and it's so lovely to hear you talk about those transferable skills and that ability to as a tennis player, run your own business. And I just urge anybody listening from parents, players, coaches to really understand that it is an investment. You know, this, this tennis playing is an investment in your future. You know, I hear people all the time, if I don't get this ranking, it's a waste I've wasted, you know, and there's, there's not a minute that's wasted if you, if you're throwing yourself into it. And the thing that is really impressive to me, Mike is, Look, the concept's great. Now, we're all full of ideas in this world. You know, we can, we can say, why doesn't someone do this? Why doesn't that happen? You know, why can't that be more affordable? But to take it from concept to reality is a whole different thing. And for me, that's where the real work happens in, in any form of life, any, any business. So to start us off, how long as a starting point, did it take you to go from concept to actually having something that you could roll out that you felt comfortable, that you were happy to take some money for people to pay for the service that you guys are providing? So, yeah, it, um, that's, that's actually a very good question because it, it probably started with all, as, as with all the other ideas that, that, you know, anybody probably has, as you said, right? At the beginning, we were just, I think that was, I think the, the most crucial point was back when I was transferring from professional tennis to amateur tennis. And then at some point 
started as a coach, but also as a chairman of a local tennis club. Okay. Um, because I, you know, that was a small club. They lost a lot of the um, volunteers and I, I stepped in and I said, okay, you know, this is something that I want to build, the, the small tennis club over here. And then um, the idea was born when I was looking for all these concepts that I knew from professional sport and other sports. And I was looking for something that I could buy for my club. It was a problem that I had literally that okay. day. And um, looking around, I just found solutions that were up to you know 30 to 50,000 euros per court. And back in the day, my annual budget was probably 10 or 15, right? So um, I said to myself, the, the possibilities that this innovation give for clubs and s children who want to you know, and, uh, engage with the sport and will be the next professionals or the next participation drivers um, for the sport um, are, are endless. And um, there's no solution for that. So I got together with um, brilliant people, like-minded people who um, also were tennis players or knew what they were doing in software and hardware development very early on. And I think this is the first answer to your question. Um, the difference between the ideas uh, and the execution starts with a great team, I think. We, we got together, we had all we need in, in, in one team to build a prototype. And then at the end of the day, what you have to have is you just got to see it through. You, with every single challenge that you get, with every single setback, you, you just have to keep on going, even though it's, it's hard from time to time. And what really helped in our situation is it really helps if you're a bit naive too. <laughs> so uh, when we first started, um, you know, I don't know if, if I knew everything that we would have to do in the next three years after the starting point, I don't know how intimidated I would be if I would start over, if somebody had told me. So I don't know if this trans, uh, uh, translates good to English, but in Germany, we do have a saying, something is impossible uh, until someone tried it who never got told that this is impossible <laughs> because he just didn't knew it. He just started, right? And, and it, in, in our case, it was the same thing. I mean, we were a small team in the beginning. We had to build hardware, software, and everything together had to raise a lot of money to make our dream come true. But we just said, well, we do it. And there was no question about it. Uh, looking back now, I probably would have had more questions, but I'm glad that I hadn't because we just, at, at every single, uh, you know, uh, corner at every single problem that we saw we just said well we, we just got to fix it and then you go from problem to problem and if the idea is big enough and you believe in it then uh, two three years later then yeah there's a system that works I think it's as yeah. at the end of the day it's as simple as that it's the second time or, or the first time I've heard someone say about the naivety outside of myself because are now setting up a tennis academy in Spain as an English person um, without having any anything in place, no players, nothing, just moving over. I've been asked time and time again, what have been the main attributes? And my answer all the time, that's why I had a smile on my face, because my answer all the time is my number one attribute is naivety. It's, it's without any shadow of a doubt, you know, and that's why for me, when I hear that maybe someone's going to come and set up a tennis academy in the area, an international tennis academy in the area, that's going to be this, then I just say, okay, great. Good luck. You know, fantastic. It's like, because I, I know what it takes and I'm not worried about somebody coming and stealing an idea. If somebody 
does do it, then then brilliant. Then competition's also good. But I, but I know it's just not a it's just not an easy thing to do. And now that I know, I'm not sure that I could do it again. You know, so <laughs> so there was a there was a real you know that I felt a real connection there hearing you say that because uh, it's not something I've heard before. And I've some often thought, am I being silly saying that? Because I think it quite clearly, you know. And I, and I think that kind of almost childish boy boyhood way of just saying, right, we're gonna we're gonna take this, you know, we're gonna grab it by our teeth and we're gonna we're gonna pull it along. I think there's so much to be said, so much to be said for it. And what were the the biggest challenges? And I think the question that jumped into my head, Mike, was. Uh, that I, I I like to try and ask the questions that I think the listeners would would have in their head, and okay, that all said and done. But how do you how do you keep doing it financially? You know how so how how's it been funded? Did you have did you have not unlimited funds, but did you ha- know that you you had quite a lot of funding and backing behind it that enabled you to keep going? Um, so yeah, no, no, that's of course that's an that's an interesting uh, question, and I think as with uh, any other startup, especially in our case, because we had to build hardware and software to yeah. just launch um, a piece of software. Um, if you have the right team, you can do it quite cheap, and you can bootstrap. You know, from gr- growing the company. In our case, we had to think big from the beginning, which meant you know, in order to to build hardware, software at the same time, to have something this scalable, uh, we we definitely needed funds right from the beginning. So we were looking for investors um, at you know probably at the very start of the idea. And with any startup um, that is being funded by venture capital, it's always interesting because uh, once you get the funding, there is a day that you know of where you won't have money left to continue. Because um, what you do is you put a lot of uh, money into developments, a lot of money into sales and marketing, but it sometimes takes a lot of time before you become profitable because you have to invest before you uh, get your returns back. And I think this can be very scary, but in our case, it turns out that it helped us to be very quick until we got from product to market. Um, And we got great investors who helped us along the way to step-by-step step move closer to a product that is very scalable and profitable at the same time. So although it is quite scary, I would do it all over again. And um, and uh, there's two ways of, of how to, to run a business. And I think this way was for us the, the best one because uh, we could achieve a lot in a short period of time, basically. And I guess you had to, had to have a pretty strong presentation and and way of getting that across to 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 investors can you talk the listeners through that process of course um so we first when we first started we launched a program called the lead sports accelerator it was an accelerator product uh, program where you know young startup founders could could apply for uh, get a little bit of investment but basically they helped you to prepare your whole pitch to investors um, you know, shape the idea, shape the execution plan and everything else, and then get ready for serious funding. And it was uh, interesting in our case because uh, LEED stands for the legacy of Adidasla, which is the founder of Adidas. And the grandchildren actually founded this in order to give back 
what they obviously earned from from years of you know or or the sale of their their shares in Adidas back in the 90s. Um, but they wanted to invest in the ecosystem and young founders such as us at this time, right? And it helped us brilliantly to prepare ourselves to be ready for difficult questions, uh, shape our plan. Because when we started, we were still quite young and didn't have quite a lot of experience. The only thing that we were really strong at was our tennis expertise. And this is what investors loved from day one because they said, well, you guys are driven, um, you have a good plan. And especially, although you're not 20 years of, of business experience, you know everything about the markets. Um, you know tennis inside out and, and you're the experts here. So we got a lot of trust in the beginning, but I think it was mainly because we had a strong presentation where, where a lot of people helped us with and we had the right team. Um, yeah. The investors knew that a lot of things are going to change from the plan. A lot of things are not going to work out. Others will work out that we don't even have in mind. But you have to have a team that is able to pivot, change on the way, and to deal with anything that comes along your way. And they they saw that in us. And and I think this is why um, we were um, yeah successful right in the beginning, especially in the fundraising process and building the product. And how did you get the correct people in place? Because again, I would say all the time, people, 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 that's what this world is about. That's what every everything is about. But it's also very easy to get the wrong people, you know? So I think it's a real skill to be able to get the right team in place. How, how did you manage to do that? Yeah, so for, first of all, um, our our uh, uh, core founder team basically it was it was um, four individuals, all of them with a tennis background, and I and I knew them from you know one of the guys I founded the companies with is, is one of my best friends. I I played with him on the tour. Okay. The other one is is my brother, who is a mechan mechanical engineer and a tennis player, so he knew his way around a hardware, and his former roommate was also. Uh, not then a tennis player, but he was very good in rowing and a software engineer. So it was a group of people that I know very good. And I knew that they were all driven, um, although they were quite young still back in the day, they were all driven. And I think that was sort of the foundation where we built the team with these uh, individuals, very like-minded uh, guys uh, driven by, by the passion of sports, uh, but also had expertise in different areas. And from that moment on, we tried to look for the same qualities that we saw in our team, but also try to diversify a little bit because you cannot have always the, the right mindset in, in all of the uh, team members, right? We looked for a strong passion in sports because this is what unifies everybody in the team. It doesn't matter anymore if it's tennis or not. Of course, a lot of tennis players uh, apply for jobs with us, uh, but it doesn't matter as long as you're passionate about uh, sports um, then you, you will fit into this team uh, uh, right away. And what all of the guys that I um, hired have in common is that all of them start with, with their own idea of what they want to achieve together with this company and the rest of the team. And they are all really you know, passionate. And, and sometimes it doesn't really matter if they have a degree from this university or the other university, one year, two year, years of experience. I look more for... Does he fit for the team and does he have, have passion um, for, for what we are doing? And if that fits, then, you know, the rest is basically all about um, putting in the hours and become better at what you do. And, and I think um, this, this helped us to build a, a pretty good team 
that works together well and 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 can perform under pressure uh, even if it gets dirty. And as it takes off, I would imagine there'll be bigger challenges ahead. You know, as you start to get into 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 employees as well. And I guess that's that's all part of the naive journey as well. You know, that, you know, right now you, you maybe don't quite know how much of a stress that might start to bring. Um, but that's maybe a good thing because as much as people are amazing, people can also be difficult as well. Of course, of course. And I'm sure in two years, if we meet again, I can tell you about my learnings then. Yeah, no, we'll have to, we'll have to have a follow-up and getting into, getting into the product and, you know, it's something I've had a good look at and I have to say, I absolutely love the look of it. You know, it's something that, you know, as an academy owner, you know, to be able to have, to be able to have accurate data at the, at the, tip of your fingertips, you know, as you're doing the sessions is just such an amazing, an amazing tool to have. What is collected, you know, for, for, for those that are trialing it out or for those that are using the system, what are the, what are the data points and the data sets that they can collect? So, so I think this is one of our um, unique selling points because there's two answers to this question. On the one hand, what are the data points that we collect? And the answer is almost all of them. So when you can think of a data point that is interesting, that is happening on the court, you know, with every single frame that we look at from the video analysis mode, um, we know where the players are, where the ball is, uh, what is moving uh, in the three-dimensional room. And uh, we can take this data and basically show it afterwards in terms of statistics, impact points, heat maps of moving, but also of, of, of the, the impacts of the ball trajectories, height above the net, um, you know, speeds, uh, but also a complete scoring of a tennis match, which allows us to give you any statistics that you want to see. So this is the one side of the answer. I think the the more important question is, and, and that, that, that was, don't get me wrong, it was quite a lot of work to achieve that oh, with sure. an affordable system. But I think the bigger challenge is, and this is what we've been focusing on for, for a long time now, is what kind of different data points are really interesting to the core group of the users that are using it. Because at the end of the day, we are an amateur focused uh, yeah. system. That doesn't mean that it's not interesting for a player, like a junior player that, that I was myself, or even while I was still a professional player. It just means that it's not tailored to a team of scientists that helped Novak Djokovic or Roger Federer to figure out how to play exactly against the next opponent, right? It's not a tool, it could be, we could give them the, the raw data, but it's really designed for a daily on-court use case that does not take up the majority of the time. It's just for checking in 30 seconds, playing and get the three most important information um, after the match is done and the three most important key features. And for us, that is easy, understandable drill scores and different drill scenarios. It is, um, you know, key facts of video of a tennis match put together in smart video filters where we don't only show you, let's say your biggest forehand mistakes inside the baseline, but also compare yourself to, to other matches that you played before to get an understanding of, okay, that is something 
that I did a bit differently than the match before. So it's very really about using data to show you the key facts and, and show improvement on that side. On, on the second part, you know, this is all about training focused. On the second part, we also try to develop features using data that allow um, you know, court owners um, to, to provide their players a new form of competition format, for instance, or other ways to engage with a gamification of tennis, for instance. And one specific uh, thing that we just launched with the German Tennis Federation together is if you go on a Wingfield court in Germany, then you can actually play an official match without a referee on site. Only two players could go on the court, check in at our box, and basically get official rating points uh, from this very match. Although they didn't enter in an official competition or they did not play a league match, but yep. because we use our data in order to validate the match and see if the match was being played full and if it was being played fair. And I think this is something that data could also do, right? It's, it's a completely new feature. It changes the way how you consume uh, competition, how you consume yep. training. But it's based on data. It doesn't just give you like, yeah. you know, tons of data points, but it's a feature developed on the basis of data. And I think this is what's even more important if you look at, at uh, data analysis uh, in tennis. It's not only about, uh, you know, showing data and tracking data. It's about what you do with this data and how that impacts the daily life of a coach, a tennis player, uh, and also a facility owner. Yeah, because I think if I take myself, why, why would I... Why would I want to use this? And and I think, I think there's a couple of there's a couple of bits for me that I, that that would be very interesting. One, I think it would be good for me to be able to track speed and height of of the ball. Let's say one of my players, you know, I might say to him, "Look, I feel him or or she." I might say, "You're not. You don't seem to quite be feeling the ball the same today," you know. And they might go, "Yes, I am." And then you know, I might be able to just say, "Well, actually." You know, you're down six, seven miles an hour, you know, on on yesterday. So maybe we need to use a little bit more legs or blah, 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 whatever it might be. And the second thing would be for me, within competition, if I had the ability, and, and it'd be great to know if this does have the ability, that let's say my two players on a Wingfield Court player set, would I be able to go back and view that set without all of the time in between the points. Is that something that's that's possible? Um, yes, definitely. So um, we actually developed, we, we call it the smart video player, basically. Okay. So whenever you step off the court, you finish the match session on the Wingfield box, uh, the smart net post, then all of the data is being uploaded. And once you have access to not only the data, but also the video of your session, then since we do have all of the data points, uh, then you could not only skip the breaks between, um, um, you know, uh, a match session, but you could also just, we did it a little bit like YouTube um, does, you know, you can just swipe up and you have little tiny video clips that we automatically generated for you okay. on the basis of the match, which could be, for instance, look at just the highlight, look at just the net approaches or look at, uh, just the forehand misses that you had, for instance, right? So it's like we use this this video for video analysis, but we make it easy for the coach and the player to revisit the most interesting parts. I think it's a crucial part of of using video to learn is is really not to spend a lot of time 
yeah. looking at you know that time or looking at something that is really not a, a, a key focus for you to look at. Yeah, because I I had a big eye-opening experience a few years ago at Wimbledon qualifying. One of my players was playing and he finished his match and a couple of hours later, somebody came up to me and they handed me, it might've been a CD at the time or whatever it was, or maybe it was a USB to plug into my laptop. And it was a 12 minute video of his one and a half hour match. So now I watched it now I analyzed it and because in, in, in reality, unless you're working one-on-one with a tennis player, you're, you're not going to be able to spend two two hours watching a tennis match every week, every couple of days when you're so busy with all of the other things that you're doing. So time is, time is, is a big stressor. And I think to have that capability to be able to watch and then like you say, stop the highlights. The next question I'm going to ask, I would imagine the answer to this is no. If the answer to this is yes, I think I'm going to call your sales and marketing team in, in one hour's time and get this set up tomorrow. Could I, go in and say, right, I want to see every second serve return at 30 all in the match and even then do that over the, over 10 matches. So let's say I've saved up 10 matches of, you know, Joe Bloggs playing and I want to see him every single second serve return that he hits and, and, and specify that to, to a score that I want to see. So um, answer would be ask me that question in six months again, <laughs> because okay. we, 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 we're actually working on, on, on similar products because right now what we do is we do that automatically and we show you the features that our artificial intelligence is actually picking out uh, from your part. We decided not to give the coach or the player too many options because we found that the user experience of using the app uh, will become very technical straight yes. away. And not everybody is really, you know, good or, or like a pro in using this and, and will spend a lot of time to really try to understand the whole me- mechanism behind this. But we do share the same passion as, as you two, you know, um, saying that this is very interesting. I want to keep this information and I want to showcase it for a longer period of time, comparing one match to the other in a very, very specific um, uh, part or statistics so so there will be the uh, the possibility how much you can do as a coach by yourself uh, it's still a question of how good we can manage to still keep it simple uh, yeah. give you a lot of uh, possibilities but keep it simple at the same time because um, this is where where we focus on a lot user experience yeah. Uh, but also, you know, delivering values. So I can't promise that exactly this feature will be there in six months, yeah. but something that is very close by will okay. definitely be there and is already there in, in, you know, some other capacity. Yeah, and I'm sure, look, the the masses of people at tennis clubs aren't probably interested in that, you know, and I think that's, you know, that, so, so I, I fully understand that. So, so tell me, you're a coach. You you once you're a coach, you're a coach. I know you've moved into a different a different area now. How would you use it on a, on a daily basis as a coach? Yeah, I, I I would definitely tell my players right from the beginning when they warm up. I would start a warm up drill right away because what 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 I think um, 
measuring your performance helps you the most is really be mindful about what you're doing on the court. And I know a lot of players, um, or actually, no, not a lot of players. I think some players are able to do that by themselves. Yeah. You know, if you probably watch Rafa on a training session, he's there all the time. He doesn't need something to remind him that now is the crunch time and now it's, it's yeah. his turn to give it all he got, right? But I think especially in the, in the young generation of players, I would start to measure the warm-up performance. I would start to measure the drill performance. And I would tell them, look, guys, um, this is not the 100% that you can give right now. It doesn't always in every exercise need to be this, you know, power sprint 100%. Sometimes it's about touch and feel, but, but you can measure that. And you yeah. can really say, well, guys, even if I'm not on the court, um, you played this four and cross court drill to, to warm up like five minutes and you both have a scoring under 40, you know, you can do 60. And this is like an easy thing to me. I don't have to spend 10 minutes using yep. my phone. I can see it right away. And at the end of the day, the data doesn't lie, um, you know, and this is, this is what, what, what I would do. I would use it a lot in warm up already um, to really show my players. Well, you got to be mindful about what you're doing on the court. And obviously, whenever I change something uh, with my players, like a grip or backswing or movement or whatsoever, I would do a drill every single session out of the basket because I can show him the improvements and the little steps, even though if you change something in the technique, he will lose a lot of points in the beginning, uh, you know, also a lot of drill points, but he will gain them back and, you know, overcome his his top score that he had before and i think that helps a lot not only in being mindful but also in keeping motivated even though you're going through a rough patch because you see even tiny steps of improvement which you don't see in practice i think that's yeah. a huge problem for players the only thing that they know is i lost the last match or i lost the last baseliner but but what they don't see is well you've come a long way you you gained five points in a drill scenario um, and, and this is a huge achievement in two weeks, for instance. And it does not always transfer into points right away, but it eventually will if you keep on working. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk a lot at the Academy and on, and on the podcast having different success measures. And I think when people's only success measure is, is win or loss, you're going to spend a lot of time feeling very down and the loss is going to be very heavy. And it goes on to one of my bigger points. One of the biggest reasons I think people stop playing tennis is because the losses are too heavy. They can't, they can't take the losses. Whereas if there's different processes of seeing that they're being successful uh, along the way. So that's certainly very interesting to me. Can you do, just explain to myself, but also the listeners, you've mentioned now these points. So 40, 60, 80, what what are those points? How does that accumulate? How how's that tracked? So we created a, a shot measure, measurement within you know standardized drill scenarios. For instance, uh, there's one target um, you know in the back of the court um, where let's say in a in a, a basket drill, for instance, you feed your player ten balls to the forehand, and he has this one target to play at, right? Okay. And in this scenario we measure the speed and the accuracy of each of the shots and combine these two measurements into one final scoring that basically gives you uh, an overall scoring between zero and 100. It's a lot of different data points that we have to collect for that, 
But at the end of the day, it's just one number that is easy understandable, right? And I think this yeah. is this is key. We created sort of new measurements for not the overall performance in the next tennis match, but for this standardized exercise, which shows you if you're getting better at something or not. And, and this is this is basically how we do it. Like have a clear target and measure the most important stats around the stroke towards this target. That could be either one target out of the basket or a partner drill, for instance, where you just go cross court with two targets for the players and see if they can handle a speed of 20 or if they can handle a speed of 30 without losing accuracy because then their scoring will go down. So, okay. so I think this is, it's, it's, it's all about using a lot of data to get it into one scoring that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good, good. And, and in terms of probably the, the biggest question is how do we know that it's accurate? So I could answer you how, how I know uh, that it's accurate mm -hmm. um, because we spend a lot of time trying that out, a lot of time uh, uh, developing. But, but, you know, if you just go on the court and use the system, you will know that uh, it's accurate. It's, and I can be quite honest with you, it's not as accurate as Hawkeye. Yeah. Um, so um, if you know, the officials of Wimbledon would call me right away and say, could we just put your system in there for the finals of the center court? I'd say no, because, you know, Hawkeye has a lot of cameras with a lot of frames focused on just one line, right? We don't have the same accuracy, but our accuracy is definitely good enough to use it for the use cases that we have, yeah. right? And in terms of line calling, although we don't have a feature for that, we don't do that at the moment for, for other specific reasons. <laughs> we do have a very good accuracy that in most cases is better than the human eye. It's in a sort of centimeter margin. And especially for using that to compare yourself, uh, you know, any single session, once you try it out, you will see that it's, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's accurate. And this is the only answer that I can give you for yourself. I know why I know that, but, but the good thing is that since the systems are basically replacing the net post, they don't move. We yeah. calibrate them once, they don't move, they are fixed to the ground. So, so there's not a lot, lot happening. And, and from that moment on, we, we, we track the movement and we do have um, quite good algorithms that filter out any side noise or side impact, something yeah. like this. What's the fastest ever serve being hit on a Wingfield court? I think the last time I checked was three months ago. But it was 215, I think, kilometers per hour. Okay. Because I think that's quite a good also when it comes to speeds. You know, I've used, I have used some other systems without going into names, but I have used other systems and I've seen people spank forehands and then it's come up as 45 miles an hour. And I'm like, that's net, that's like, that's never a 45 mile an hour forehand. It's, yeah. it's, it's so, so then the, the problem, I guess, with a system like that is it then loses credibility quite quickly, you know, for, for people in, in the tennis world. So I always think, you know, I, you have a pretty good idea of what a serve is, you know, and as long as, as long as it's within, you know, your two, three, four miles an hour, then I yeah. think you're, you're in and around. And I think the second thing for me that's then important as long as it's then accurate from day to day, then you can as well, because you can then take your, you've got a consistency of measurement, you know, rather than taking something else. Uh, but no, I'm, I, I can't wait to try it out. Whilst I've got you, Mike, I, I also, 
would love to move you into the professional game and your thoughts on data analytics within the professional game. Because like I, like I said to you off air, we've had Craig O'Shaughnessy, we've had Mike James, you know, working with some of the best players in the world. It seems as if there's a real niche right now within, within the sport of tennis that, that people are looking for experts in this area. Um, I'm a big believer that it's, it's, it can be massive if it's interpreted in the right way and if ultimately the messages are given the right way to, to the player. What's, what's your take on data analytics in, in the professional game? I think you pretty much um, um, had it right on spot when you said that when it's basically you know, interpreted the, the right way or in a good way, because there's masses of data out there from a professional tennis match, right? And um, there's a lot to, to uh, you know, use from this data and a lot to gain from this data. But there is also something that could go horribly wrong if you, you know, go at it the wrong way. And I think there's some things that, that just became quite obvious uh, thanks to, for one thing, uh, Craig O'Shaughnessy as well, who you had on, on, on the podcast, you know, the surf plus one patterns, the importance of surf and, and return and the first points. This is something that goes over all of the matches, right? But if you look at an, at an individual match, it's more about not only understanding the data, but also, you know, teaching your player the right things at the right moment. Because even though you saw something in the data and it might be good to explore that, it does not mean that your player, especially on this day against this opponent in this week of the year is able to execute. And it might be the wrong way to tell him, even though the data would suggest to do so, because you gotta have a good feeling. And this is why I say, whenever I get the, you know, um, someone asking me if, if, you know, coaching AI is going to replace coaches, I'm always saying, no, it's, it's never going to be that way. It's going to show you percentages of what to do next and what's a good probability to win the point. But at the end of the day, it's, it's humans on the court, right? Yeah. And you just have to understand and give them the right tools. And, and at the end of the day, the only thing that you can tell your players, it's, it's mostly one to three things that you can really tell them before a match. And the less, the better. If you tell them 10 things, they're not going to, to play a good match and they can focus on you know, probably just one. So, so start with one and you have a really good player, maybe go for three maximum. But, but at the end of the day, these masses of data come down to three basic yeah. things, which will be, you know, sometimes very specific and sometimes will be the same for two matches yeah. in a row maybe. But, but this is the way how I think at it, about it. You have to include it in your coaching plan. It's important. It can bring you uh, definitely a lot of value, but you also got to be good in delivering the message to your player because at the end of the day, he has to execute on the court. Yeah, well, I've been hearing some some scare stories uh, that, that are true. I won't name players, but where there's now some some data analytics that are actually people that, are, that don't even have a great background in tennis, but they're purely just taking data and graphs and you know patterns and these type of things and they're actually delivering them directly to the player before they go on to play a match and and for me that that is going down a really slippery slope you know in terms of if players start to become too obsessed over those sort of things and you know to share a little story not directly to me Andy Murray but 
directly to a good friend of mine, you know, when he was asked about certain things and I know he uses data in his training, but when he was asked about, you know, about what he thought about, about being given certain bits of information about where a player serves, his response was, are you telling me I play Roger Federer and I've got a break point and the data tells me he's going to serve out wide. Are you telling me he doesn't have the capabilities of, of changing that and serving down the middle? You know, like, come on. Uh, why would I want to know that he potentially is going to serve out wide when all of a sudden, you know, he's got the ability to hit every centimeter of that box, you know, and, 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 and ultimately like, like Andy said, and to paraphrase Andy, you know, tennis is a game of moments and, and, you know, and I think, I think your ability to, to have that collective data and interpret it the right way for your player. And, and, and some people I know will use that as just purely as a development tool you know, some players will use it as a scouting tool, but ultimately, like you say, it'll come down to humans. Now, my last question on that, Mike, and I'm, I'm very conscious you've been very kind with your time, is the other B that I have in my bonnet about, about things is, and I still have this B in my bonnet, even though I've questioned the guys that are doing it on the tour, is why can't we get a consistent common way of collecting data within the professional game of tennis. And what I mean by that is there seems to be so many different KPIs for every different thing. And the one that always jumps to me is, is net points one, you know, so Craig O'Shaughnessy that net points one, he collects that as, if somebody's got two feet inside the baseline, somebody else, Mike James, collects that as somebody's got two feet inside the service line. You know, it seems to me that there's something missing within our, our sport that we can't actually trust one collective data source to give this data to us all to learn from. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I, I actually don't know. Probably I'm, I don't know if I am, but I, I might be part of the problem because of course we had to define our own uh, measurements of data and we tried to push ourselves and question the status quo at the same time because we're also developing new sort of statistics uh, um, on our way. And I think, I think this, especially the better you get and the more you look at professional tennis, then it becomes more and more important to have uni unified measurement. But also, I think we're just at the beginning of how to use data. So I think it's a fair point to question it and to go at it from different perspectives. And there will be a lot of different measurements over the probably next 10 years. And there might be that some of them are more important, more successful than others. Um, but as long as, as the measurements work in your um, own coaching style, your own coaching philosophy, then it's, I, I think it's a fair point to, to not you unify them all uh, at the end of the day and be more focused on individuals or on, on other formats as well. Um, but I do get your frustration. I can understand it that, you know, if you want to look at the holistic approach, then there's no uh, measurement. There should be both ways, I believe. There should be a data yeah. um, warehouse where everything is unified in a way, but there should be uh, ways to inter interpret it a different way because I think this is important because we're not nearly close to um, using the data as good as we could use it probably in, in 10, 20 years from now. 
So that leads me on to my last question before we move into our quick fire. What is the future of data in the sport of tennis? Um, in, in my point of view, it's, it's not really the future of data and tennis. And, you know, where I come from, I look at amateur sports more than the top hundred of how they use data, right? So, so I think the future is what you can do with the data in order to develop something that drives participation and engagement because the sport in order to survive has to evolve, has to be innovated, has to you know, think of new ways on how to attract younger generations because we're competing with a lot of other sports, a lot of other online offerings nowadays. And I think the power of data is really about how to use it, how federations even can use it, clubs can use it, in order to sort of individualize and, and strengthen their offering uh, towards new members, new players. And it's not only in coaching, it's about competition, it's about engagement, it's about a lot of things. I think um, to have this data is only the, the, the door opener for all of these interesting features in the future. And of course, in coaching, very, very important and probably the first feature that was being developed but the next steps, they're really, really interesting because other sports have shown how data can create massive communities, massive engagement, and you know, drive, drive a lot of participation. And I think this is what, what's, what needs to be done in the future. It's a great place to finish before we move into the quick fire. And just before we do, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you, Mike. I've, it's been such a pleasure to, to speak to you. Sometimes when, uh, when we get into this sort of thing and you think of a, a smart tennis court, you know, you think uh, you might get somebody who's going to come on and be a little bit nerdy, geeky, and only know about data and those things. But I think I, I'm with you on what you said about selling this to the investors. You know, the fact that you have such a fantastic tennis background as your other co-founders do, I think that really does shine through loud and clear. And, and I'm sure that you're only going to go from strength to strength. So the best of luck to you and your team. Thank you for coming on. And are you ready for the quick fire round? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then first of all, thanks also for inviting me had a had a blast talking to you. So so very interesting. I always love to, to uh, talk to passionate uh, tennis players, coaches, everybody from the industry about especially these future oriented topics. So so thanks for the invitation. Okay, forehand or backhand? Forehand. Net points or baseline points? Baseline. But you wish you'd done more of the net when you were younger, huh? Well, I do. <laughs> yes. The ATP Cup or Davis Cup? Davis Cup. Favorite Grand Slam? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, so I love to play on clay, but we do have a strong relationship with Wimbledon and I got to spend uh, a day with the members there. So I can say I have to look from, from a player's perspective, probably uh, French Open. But as a whole experience sort of um, perspective, uh, Wimbledon. And talking of Wimbledon, is this, <laughs> is, is this Federer's last Wimbledon? I think so. I yes. think so. Sadly, I think so as well. Yes. The next question is Rafa or Roger? 
So if you'd asked me five years ago, I'd said Roger right away. But I'm so impressed with, with this human being, especially after the last, I don't know, three French Open and about how humble he acts. So, so I, since it's, it's all also very important uh, role model in my childhood, I probably still say Roger, but it's, it's not something that I would love, uh, an, you know, uh, one answer or the other question for. So, how, yeah. luck, how lucky are we to have had both? you know both of those over there is incredible it's, it's crazy these i mean these these two competitors and it obviously uh Djokovic, uh as well i mean these to see them on the court it's um yeah it's crazy that we had the chance to to watch them for over two decades now right it's it's, it's definitely a blessing and should there be an injury timeout for the players in the middle of the match or not it should be, definitely. Um, I say that because I had to use it quite often in my career. And uh, I think, you know, it's, it's a very physical sport and you got to get the chance to to get it. I'm, I'm strongly for it, yes. What's one rule change that we should have in tennis? I'd probably say also again, to increase the time between sides change a little bit. I know it's 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 a hot button issue, especially with the good players. But I I was I appreciated every second that I got on the court. <laughs> <laughs> I, I needed to take my time between the points too. And and I feel from time to time seeing that clock probably for the spectators interesting, but I think it puts a lot of pressure on the players as well. So but, but I don't now, know. but it, 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 now that we're, you know, we talked about the, the importance of building participation, you know, we're, we're going against so many other things. Surely if we slow the sport down anymore, we're just going to lose more and more people in this day and age. You're right. And, and probably we definitely shouldn't slow it down more. I agree with you on that. But, but on the other point, I always say when I hear about, we, we should change the format keep it shorter to be more interesting for spectators and broadcasters. I would say that that would be a wrong decision too, because I think the beauty of the game is that, you know, it, it can take hours and hours. It's, you know, you can always come back from something and, and it's the beauty of a five set match, right? It's, it's never over as we saw in the French open final. Absolutely. And uh, my last question, who should our next guest be on control the controllables? Um, that's a good question. I'd say Richard Hinman. Tim. <laughs> no, it's his brother, Richard, actually. I mean, Tim Hinman, obviously, I don't know. Uh, has he been with you already? Tim's on our list and it's, uh, he's, he's playing hard to get a little bit, you know? So if you, if you can have the little, the little inside push, you know, then we would, we would love to get Tim on. And if we get Tim on, then Richard comes next and then Wingfield gets even more exposure, you know, so there's a little incentive for you. <laughs> I, I always, um, I'm, I'm very interested in the stories of these pure tennis families, right? Where there's brothers who played for a long time and everything. I had the same in, in, in my family as well, but, but I, I love the stories always about, you know, uh, competing in younger age and, and, you know, um, pushing each other. I, I, I love this. Definitely. Well, well, you'll have to listen to our last podcast, which was Luke Jensen and Luke oh, Jensen. Yeah. 
the four Jensen's, so himself and Murphy, who won, who won the French Open. But I didn't know this, but both of his sisters, his twin sisters, also both played main draw Grand Slams. So all four Jensen kids played Grand Slams, which was an incredible story. Yeah, they, they must do either something wrong with the gene pool or with how they how they are being raised, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. In incredible. Mike, thank you so much. And, and good luck. Like I say, I'm, I'm looking forward to working with you guys in, in the near future when we get our situation set up to be able to do it. I'm excited to, to see to see what I hear. And I think it's 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 great what you guys are doing for tennis, you know, to bring something more affordable that, like you say, bringing this in level of engagement. So well done to you and the team and the best of luck. Thanks for that and thanks for having me. Unfortunately, I'm unable to bring Vicky with me to Portugal. So it's going to be just me talking about that, about that show. But hope you all loved the show I know some people might look at that one and think it's going to be a bit of an advertising one and I was really determined to make sure it wasn't just about advertising a product I know sometimes podcasts can come across like that when you have a CEO of a company such as such as Wingfield but I thought Mike did a great job and I loved the conversation around the bigger pictures of setting up a business around the data collection, around where we are as a, as a sport and, and where we go with the technology that is going to come in more and more and more. Uh, but certainly the bits for me that stood out, I harp on about it all the time, you know, tennis being this vehicle. And I think, I think sometimes when we're in the heat of the moment in our tennis careers at whatever level that is, it's quite hard for us to see how that's going to help us later in life. You know, the failures, how's the, how are the failures going to help us? And, you know, the same with the England football team, you know, losing on penalties again. Now, how's that going to help them? But these young men having to deal with that, the resilience they're going to have to show, you just see at some point in their life, they will pinpoint that as being a moment that really helped them and led on to something else that was very special. And, and, and I think Mike being a tennis player, a thousand in the world, you know, having the challenges of playing in, in the difficult ITF tour, as we all know, but he's been able to take those skills and apply them to business. And that, that really stuck with me as well. You know, he talked about, you know, being naive and again, that's something with the podcast, that's something with the academy that really touches my heart because I do believe that's one of the greatest attributes of lots of people that, that just go and set, set up these things. You know, sometimes it's easier not to set them up, you know, sometimes, but and once we have the knowledge of how challenging it is, it's certainly easier to stay away from it and that really resonated with me, the resilience that he's shown. Yes, we're all having Wingfield now come to our screens and we're hearing about it, but there's been five, six years of hard work, failure, difficulties to get to this point, as there will be more and more difficulties as they start to move through it. And I think it's just an important point for us all to know we live in a world of people wanting instant gratification. You know, we live in the social media world 
we're we're a little bit bored. So we put a picture up and we get we get 50 likes and we get that hit of dopamine that makes us feel better. You know, we have people all the time. You know, I've put I hear tennis players say it all the time. I've worked so hard the last three weeks. Why am I not playing well? You know, I deserve to play well. I really worked hard for three weeks. It's not how anything meaningful happens. You know, any meaningful relationship, any meaningful success takes time. And I took that loud and clear from Mike. You know, he's willing to put the work in. He's resilient. You know, they're going to have difficulties. You've got to stick at things and and just chipping away and then something something will happen. And I've got no doubt that they're going to have a lot of success with, with this current business that he has. And I hope all of you take those lessons and so much more from these podcasts. As I said at the start of the show, you know, we will be bringing three special guests onto our panel to review Wimbledon 2021. And oh my goodness, isn't there so much to review? You know, so many things happened. Yeah, and that will be coming to you guys in the next few days. My last thing to say is just a big thank you to you all. You know, we we are loving the messages coming through. Many of you have been rating, reviewing, emailing, all of those things. And once the Wimbledon review comes out, I hope you look forward to four or five weeks for you guys to reflect and go back and listen to some of the podcasts that you haven't had the chance to do. So we plan on coming back even stronger in September 21 with more and more guests that are, that are lined up. And we're so excited to be continuing to bring these shows to you. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan and we are Control the Controllables.